0: Is it possible for communities reliant on fossil fuels to help lead the climate transition? Too often, coal and gas communities are written off by environmental campaigners as enemies of climate action. But is that kind of thinking just holding back the kind of change we really need? This changemaker chat is with Elise Ganley. Australia's had a highly polarised climate debate for many years. Stuck between a dependence on coal exports and climate cultural wars, the need to decarbonise our economy stalled. In 2019, a new project got started that recognised that climate-affected communities can and should play a leadership role shaping climate transition. Rather than leaving policy reform to political leaders or public servants in Canberra, Real Deal for Australia has built place-based projects to create policy solutions from the ground up. Elise is the national leader of this work and lives in Gladstone in central Queensland. Today, she talks about how the Real Deal has cut through some of the polarisation in the climate debate to build climate policy that seeks to improve issues like housing, healthcare and livability as it builds a renewable energy economy. And full disclosure – I work with Elise at the Sydney Policy Lab, and I was the instigator of the Real Deal Project. So I'm a pretty big supporter of Elise and this work. I am utterly delighted to bring this story to you on Changemakers today. So let's go. I'm Amanda Taddis, welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, hello, Elise Ganley, and welcome to Changemakers. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me. This is quite a weird conversation because we actually work together every day, know each other quite well, but we are going to have a conversation now in public so um, we can share some of the amazing work that you have been leading around the country, a novel approach to how to deal with climate transition. But before we get to that, I just want you to share with our listeners kind of change maker are you? How would you describe the kind of change you seek to make in the world?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I would say I'm a community organiser. So I primarily work with communities uh, within civil society. So different community groups, faith groups, unions, environmentalists to develop leaders to together win campaigns.
0: And so, some on our on our who listen to us would know. Oh, community organising! I've heard all about it. But is there anything more before we get into the the why? You've talked about leadership development. And you've talked about this array of organisations. Anything else that you think it's important for people to understand about community organising as a way of being a change maker? That's that's helpful for people.
1: I think primarily what community organisers are about is building deep relationships with people, to enable them to tell stories about what's important to them, what's at the heart of what makes them angry, what they're passionate about, what their interests are, and then being able to imagine what's possible in collaboration, both one-to-one, but also in coalition and collaboration with others who... Uh, unusual or different suspects to who they might normally imagine their interests aligning with. Excellent, excellent. So we are going to get into finding out about
0: why you've become a community organizer, in particular working now on issues of climate and economic transition in Australia by having you tell some of your stories. Right. Mm, so yes. we're going to go back to the source of the of the crime and find out, like, go back as far back as as useful or or relevant for for us to understand why did you become a community organiser now working in climate. Tell us about where that came from for you.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the way I think about change really orientates around place and community. And for me, that's because my community is so important to me. So I was born in uh, bungalow country, Wyala, with the red dust of the steelworks um, and the ocean of the Spencer Gulf. And when I was eight years old, I moved to Port Piri, uh, which is a- across the, the other side of the ocean there in, in South Australia on Nookanoe country. And my, f- my family have been you know settlers for five generations around that area. And my mum and dad and my two younger brothers um, still live in Port Piri. And I have a lot of really close friends who are back home and lots of cousins and, and grandparents and that really orientates me in terms of how I think about um, the ways that we can make our communities better is that in you know, how we do that in ways that honors the stories of, of where we're from.
0: And how do you think that that being from Whale and Port Puri shaped you as a young person like how, how did that just orient you as a young person?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my, so my mum and dad are very good at sport. So my mum is an amazing netballer. My dad was the full forward for the Central Wayala Football Club. Oh my gosh, it's a match right Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, my, my grandparents too and... Uh, unfortunately, their firstborn, uh, me, was born with limited sporting ability, and so whilst I hung out a lot at the, you know, within sporting spaces, I, I found other homes, and so you know, Port Perry Youth Theatre was was a space where I was able to build my confidence and also the local church group that we were a part of called the Young Christian Students Movement, which was led by high school students um, looking at what was happening around them. So yeah, I think like, I think that I got my first sense of how to make a difference through that YCS group, being a year nine student, looking at bullying that was happening, looking at racism and and how we could respond as high school students and practising that every fortnight. What's happening? What do you think about it? How are you going to act? How does that action go? Doing that from the age of 14 really instils a a practice of action reflection that's done in community and with others and you kind of build from that.
0: Yeah, okay. So so you became... you know active in in social and political life quite young you know 14 that's that's very young where did that take you right so you became an organizer but but what you know you started this group young christian workers action reflection tell us about the 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 sort of the reflective journey that saw you start there and and eventually move to to organizing
1: yeah i think a pivotal moment for me was when other uh, young christian students movement students from other places around australia came to visit my school in Port Puri. I was in year 10. And we they decided they wanted to do a day trip where they wanted to go, you know, down the, the, the highway and go to Manbrake Creek with the beautiful kind of nature and rivers and that that type of thing a rivers rivers is a strong word it's a drought like a creek <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and and go go in a bus down there and, and and we did that and then afterwards we went to Baxter Detention Center you know through Port Augusta to Baxter Detention Center and we
0: probably need to do an explain for those who are listening internationally tell people about what Baxter
1: is yeah Baxter Detention Center was where they imprisoned people who came by boat as part of sort of John Howard's ongoing policy of, of offshore detention where they... And this is for refugees, right? Yeah, 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 for refugees. So it's not and, criminals. And as- <laughs> they different for refugees,
0: yeah.
1: right? <laughs> uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And in Port Augusta, they were supporting young people who were, uh, what just wanted to play soccer when they were in community and other young people that were in Baxter Detention Centre. And as a, as a, you know, eight-year-old um, around September 11 and Woomera, uh, detention center, you know, seeing the 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 protests that happened then, and then sort of continuation of that pro- that policy in Port Augusta. For me to be in in the place that I love and that I call home, surrounded by such a a supportive community, and then to have these other students come to Baxter and we prayed together and we sang a song, and they just cried and I didn't, and that stuck with me about how that how that policy. Could happen where i lived in a in a um, place with with people who are compassionate and often you know good how could we have baxter detention center there and i think that question stuck with me when I went on to work for the Young Christian Students Movement, when I finished school and was trying to figure out how do we how do we stop that kind of horrific injustice happening in Australia, and what would that take? And it sounds, I mean, it's it's almost you talked earlier
0: about place, this deepening understanding of place, connecting to your understanding of making a difference, really sort of pushing against each other as you're becoming an adult. So then, how did that then? So, so you're sort of exposed to this activism, this challenging activism in your space, people coming into protest, something's
1: happening right near you. Where did that go next? So when I went to work for the Young Christian Students Movement, we had a whole heap of, this, this policy was continuing, right? So I was then working with high school students who then were saying, hey, this is happening, you know, all around Australia. We need this to stop. And at that time, I was visiting a friend of mine, Kudnush Zad, in Adelaide inverbraki Detention Centre. And it was still, it, it was still happening. And I worked with the, these students um, to, to build a coalition to try and get kids out of detention. And it, and it wasn't until I I met you Amanda (laughs) And he said That's great Elise But you don't have enough power Wow power like what is that how do we how do we get that how do we how do we build it how do we wield it and how do we do that together so that this this doesn't ever happen again that kind of sparked something in in me that that led me to community organizing as as a as an answer to to build power and and actually to do that in a way that honors the stories of the the people that were in my life and the organizations and institutions that formed them because often in campaigning we see people you know through messaging tests or we see people through a particular issue but community organising enables people to bring their full selves and their full stories of their values to it and that's what I loved because I felt seen in that place and that we then were actually hard-headed and serious about actually tackling issues that matter.
0: Mm. And look like a good community organiser you are using some strong language here that I'm sure some people who are listening are going I don't want to wield power. The baddies wield power. <laughs> yeah. I am not a power wielder. I'm like a nice person who 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 does nice things. Like, how did you grapple with that? Like, tell, talk mm. us a bit through, because, you know, we know the power is a loaded concept. People people think of power as bad. You're talking about power as having the c- capacity for, for good. Maybe talk us through how you resolve that.
1: Well, uh, my understanding of it really comes from the Industrial Areas Foundation which in Australia is is the, the Sydney Alliance, Hunter Community Alliance and Queensland Community Alliance which teaches community leaders that we want to build power with. Yeah, we want to build power that's open and transparent and generative and collaborative um, and not a power that's over people but one that is consenting and one that's able to stand up for what we believe in because honestly business and government have no issues with the word power and they build it and they wield it and I would want the people in my life who who care about their communities to be just as serious about it when it comes to um, looking after the people that they're in relationship with, and so yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. <laughs> <laughs> so joining in and
0: becoming comfortable with some of these words, you've talked about the Industrial Airs Foundation. You you joined the Queensland Community Alliance. Tell yeah, us, tell us a little bit about how that experience of being a community organizer with them shaped and and changed you as a as a person.
1: Yeah, I, I think like for me, it's really important to learn. And like having come from a tradition where of mentoring and learning from others, it was really important to me that if I was going to put myself out as somebody who was interested in social change, I better get disciplined and get reflective and be, um, be able to do that in a serious way and not lead people into defeat uh, and so that's why I yeah I, I joined the Queensland Community Alliance I moved to Brisbane um, in 2017 after um, going to the UK and hanging out with the Nottingham Citizens which is a sister organization there and the the reason I came, came to Brisbane to do that is because I you know I really loved some of the stuff they were doing
0: Yep. And so what did you learn there? Like what did you – how did, did organising – I mean it's, I love it because you're talking about organising as a practice that grows leaders mm. and you're also talking about organising as being an organiser grew, mm. grew you. How do you think you changed in your time in working as an organiser?
1: Well, I won some stuff. <laughs> I, I don't think, like, I think that I'm grateful to the community sector leaders, community centre managers, um, union leaders, environmental leaders, different um, multicultural community leaders that really were able to teach me about their communities. And during that time, you know, we've had a founding with the with with Premier um, Anastasia Palaszczuk where we've got some initial commitments from her around... Work and around uh, care. And then we actually, I think what I'm most proudest of when I'm working at Queensland Community Alliance is is how we scaled. So Mm. the ways in which we were able to work really within a couple of suburbs in Logan, in Mount Gravatt, in Stafford, where we were able to listen to what issues people cared about win something locally and then scale it up and for me that was around um, working in on social isolation and loneliness working with a community center and two churches and a few union leaders to say hey people are quite lonely in the suburbs and let's not do a community garden, but let's do something systemic that others can learn from. And um, we were able to win money, fight for money from um, the Queensland state government to get a link worker, which was able to connect socially isolated people from GP clinics into community groups. Um, And, and that that was able to be a, a a, a cure for, for social isolation but also help health impacts and that type of thing. But, but what I love about it is that it didn't just stay there. Because we'd built the relationship with um, Anastasia Palaszczuk and the Queensland State Government, we were able to scale it up we're able to say, hey, it's not enough for one link worker in Mount Gravatt. What we need is a parliamentary inquiry into social isolation. We got commitments from both sides of the, the fence for that. And then we were able to get a 10-year strategy around social isolation and a whole heap of funding towards that. So I, I love the idea of being able to, to really experiment with with." change in in a place and then being able to learn that and and grow that elsewhere
0: yeah yeah and so you're doing all this work but you've ended up working on the issue of of climate climate transition you know the change particularly in communities that are affected either by fossil fuels or 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 disaster or or the possibility of renewals How did you take that shift for the shift from being an organizer on any issue to being to looking particularly at this challenge that is posed by climate in place?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and like any good story, sort of a long and (laughs) unwieldy one. But for me, um, sort of as COVID was hitting, I I had a a person add me on Facebook, his name was Hakim, and as we were going into lockdown, he started messaging me uh, to say hey my name's Hakim I'm in Kangaroo Point I'm in a hotel Uh, we can't leave can you help and that was happening at the same time that we were all locking down and so I built this friendship with Hakim who was a refugee who had been in Manus Island for seven years and had just been brought brought over under Medivac legislation and he was being imprisoned in a hotel 10 minutes from where I lived in the middle of Brisbane and he had built a lot of relationships. It wasn't just me. He built a lot of relationships and a lot of the other – his other friends that were in there built other relationships and they started protesting their detention and saying, hey, we know that you're all locking down but we can't socially distance – we are, we're stuck in here and it's their protest on the balconies and me and uh, my friends and other members of of, of Queensland Community Alliance responding to that protest movement with our own protests. That, that was a, that was a shift for me because I think we, I think I felt a strong sense that we needed to have a strong response and um, that, what was happening in Kangaroo Point could not stand and would not stand and we needed to um, to act around it and so that started a blockade where we blockaded the hotel and we stopped immigration from being able to transport refugees elsewhere out to Bida which was a detention centre which was out further the airport where people couldn't see and where we were able to um, protest on what was a main road connecting the city and and seeing the inhumanity of the system that was imprisoning Hakim and Farhad and Fazl and ibrahim you know all of our friends the system that was holding them there we had to resist that and the impact of that system was so catastrophic that it led me to questions about what what could be possible actually in a climate impacted future that the authoritarian nature of, of what we're, we're possible in this country scared me in terms of a uh, climate impact. So yeah, I think that was a, that was a, a real um, turning point for me. And it, and it led me, I mean, after that, after that blockade and after our friends were freed, <laughs> you know, they got out um, and we, celebrated and, you know, worked together to make sure that they had housing with local housing organisations and just local people that just stepped up. I then was sort of, my, my mind was then questioned into, you know, what what's next and, and how do we build something that's, that's hopeful and inclusive and able to actually get on the front foot of climate when actually to be honest a lot of the losing that I'd been seeing in the climate movement was actually reminiscent of the refugee movement too and and the the stakes are pretty high.
0: Yeah and it's I mean it's stunning that you have lived close to a detention centre twice you know once in once in your in your teenage years living close to Baxter and then again like and I guess what I'm seeing in your journey is that the refu- the issue, what happened to the refugees in Australia was not just – what happened to refugees in Australia was horrific, but it's also symbolic of what happens to political life in a crisis, and we've got lots of crisis in this country. So why climate? You know, there's lots of – you know, you could have got busy on refugee work. Like, what, why do you think that – you know, you, you then chose to work on this question of transition. W- what, what made you choose that as your next journey?
1: Well, another another part of my story is that there was a, a closure of the Port Augusta coal fired power station um, th- that happened and in Queensland particularly the the conversation around transition was really lacking in examples <laughs> and Port Augusta was often rolled out as oh well this was something that closed and obviously South Australia has done a done a you know is, is miles ahead of other states in terms of, of, of what's happened in the grid there but I felt that I wasn't – that our communities weren't being seen or recognised in the debate around climate or in the conversation around climate and that 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 ultimately what needed to happen was that we needed people who were on the ground who were actually impacted by the communities to have a better say and have a voice. And so – Yeah, I started doing a real deal for Australia in in that sense and and I guess intentionally chose a place response to that because – I think that there's a lot of amazing mobilizers out there who are able to, you know, garner lots of people, you know, in cities. But what was missing from the, the arena was was the hard conversations in communities, you know, such as Gladstone, where I live now, where people, you know, who are able to really come together and imagine a different way forward. And if that does not happen, and we, we can't afford that not to happen, right? So we, we need it uh, in order to, to avert a whole heap of different crises that the earth is looking at
0: yeah so we've got to the 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 sort of discussion really about the how which is the the really the the heart of the the real deal for australia project for the people who haven't heard of it because it can be a little bit of a a tortoise battling out in the in the in the in the the cities and uh, regions of australia but not necessarily everyone knows how would you describe what the real deal is
1: Yeah, we're about building power from the ground up where people are able to have a say uh, and be at the table around decisions that that matter most to them with a particular lens around um, climate. So, and you've talked about it being in particular
0: places, but let's get into that a little bit more. Like how are you, how is the project rolling out that vision? Like where is it and how is it doing it in in places around
1: the country? We've we've built two new coalitions. (laughs) (laughs) Which isn't is it not just one people? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, the the so uh, the first place is where I live now. So living Gladstone on Bailey, Tarabalung, Bunda, Gurang, and Gurang Gurang country in Central Queensland. So um, last week we just launched the outcome of 316 conversations we've had um, with communities across Gladstone around what we, what pressures people are facing, what we love about the town and also what our reactions are to transition and the future. Um, so we we started, yeah, we, we, we did that last week. And then in Geelong, there's the, the context of the collapse of the, the car industry there. And so people there have lived trans- transition. You know, one of the, the guys in, in Geelong, Tony, he says that for him, a successful transition was that no one died in, in the the factory floor where he worked. So we work um, in Geelong as well because the people who've been through transition will know what's best around what the future looks like. So sort of been intensely building coalitions in both of those places between community groups, union groups, um, faith groups, and bringing them together to make sure they have a voice, but then also looking at at working with um, Sydney Alliance in in Western Sydney as well, building on and supporting the work that's been done already with migrant communities with Voices for Power.
0: And I know that there's been a lot of work with First Nations communities in, in, in all of those places. And the, the real deal talks about privileging First Nations voices in the work. How how has that been? How like? It's never an easy piece of work because there's people have got a lot of stuff on already but like t- tell us a little bit about that piece of work.
1: Yeah, so um, Katie Moore which Amanda and I both have the pleasure of working with, um, it's a Wiradjuri woman who has really fed in around this idea of, of privileging First Nations voices, building on a lot of the works of um, Christine Evans in, in Sydney Uni here where, where we both work and I think it's about making sure that that is privileged within the process that relationships are built um, and solid solidarity is built in the way that we actually develop policy and wield, wield power together um, and that that's really been something we've been taking into account sort of throughout the process understanding that nations have their own process around nation building that they're going through um, and trying to Im- embed that as much as possible where we can.
0: Yeah and so I mean one of the things about the Real Deal project is it takes the practices of community organizing and applies them to the context of places in transition because of climate tell us like we're going to do it like what is good and what is Mm. challenging firstly to the question of what is good you know thinking about what what is so powerful and poignant about organizing that makes it well suited to this work
1: so in Gladstone there is going to be rapid economic transition as we transition away from fossil fuels internationally and, um, you know, need a heap of renewable energy to power the the smelters locally there. Right. And so that that's happening, but what organizing enables is for community leaders to actually identify, Hey, there's a real problem with the hospital at the moment. Um, you know, in Gladstone, that for months, I think over six months, the maternity ward has, was closed and on bypass, where you couldn't have a baby in a region of 60,000 people. And not only that, there's only one evidence-based supported playgroup in town um, supporting a region of that many people. When you're going to need a workforce of thousands coming in, um, constructing you know new in- industries and welcoming new migrants and that type of thing. That there's no organizing enables. The conversation to start where people are at and what they're currently experiencing to be able to to name that, negotiate around that, and then also recognise um, the complexity of the future as well. But ultimately, it enables you to see people. Yeah, and I imagine in a, in a, in
0: you know in every place, and we know that we 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 know that people are going to be affected differently by climate change depending on where you work, how mm. you work, your skills. And so forth. I guess. It, I guess the relational approach—that um, the idea of relationships preceding action, spending the time. Like you know, people think climate change and they freak out and mm. they want change tomorrow, but actually. There is an argument for the the relationship-based approach coming first that has merit in these contexts where things are actually the hardest.
1: Exactly. And, you know, in Gladstone, when we did this this process, a lot of people spoke about when the gas terminals um, were built and the impact that that had on the community and the scars that people very tangibly feel today with living of the impacts of that – and it enables those stories to come through. Similarly, you know, in Geelong, with the impacts of Ford Ford factories' departures, it enables them to say, you know, this happened and it was it was tough, and we did this amazing thing, but also this was really hard. And I don't think that mobilising as an approach enables that kind of nuance or complexity. And I think that it's that's why this is a, is a good tool to be using in the the wider context of climate action. Yeah, because sometimes sometimes climate
0: debate is. Polarised, and at some point they're going to be there's going to be always in public policy a for and against but actually what you're describing is that polarised too soon and people who who actually have something to say and an interest in supporting a transition they'll they'll fall against it if they feel like they're not heard like people might have might be wary about transition because they were left out of the transition last time that doesn't mean that they're They're not for or against – they're not – it's not actually about climate change. It's it's actually about whether people are going to respect them and respond to them. And if a process doesn't build those relationships and allow people to express – where their perspective comes from rather than just a poll that says, are you for this or are you against this? Like a a more detailed and holistic response, seeing people as whole people with lots of experiences is actually going to be so powerful in places that are going to be particularly affected where the crunch is on.
1: Right, and I think where we're moving is like we know that We need to build heaps of things. We need transmission lines. We need, you know, solar farms, wind farms. We need clean exports. Uh, There's a whole heap of stuff and ways that our communities will be changing in the next decade. And that's a shift for the environmental movement to grapple with in terms of, you know, what? minerals are mined and how we work with communities that means that we need community centres able to say what's important to them you know we need to have um, spaces where people can really name their interests because if we don't do that it's going to be harder to build what we need um, for the transition and also will mean that you know we get we get deeper polarisation so I think that I think that the more that we can use that in places um, to ensure community benefits is going to be really key
0: Excellent. So one of the things that I think is interesting, and I have to admit, people, I am biased. I'm a very big (laughs) fan and deeply involved in the Real Deal for Australia project. But one of the things that's been interesting about the project is not just that we've sought to apply organising, but that we have experimented with a traditional understanding of community organising. Do you want to talk us through some of the the things that have been different about Real Deal compared to a traditional community organising approach?
1: I think what's different is the the scale of the challenge and therefore the need to be organizing and bringing in different ideas to deal with the immediate problems that we're facing so a traditional community organizing broad-based community organizing approach is being able to identify a neighborhood key institutions within that run a listing campaign what you know what are people facing how do we fix it action, win, evaluate, right? That's the classic thing. But in the context of the changes that are happening in climate over the next decade, we also need to be engaging and interacting with the ways that that policy is forming and the ways that we're thinking about about policy um, and how it impacts communities. So, I think the way that we are intentionally trying to organise ideas and contribute to the development of thinking around, um, you know, community benefits and when infrastructure is being built in communities, I think that that connect, connection with, you know, really quite accomplished researchers to aid and, and be in relationship with the, the communities that we're working with is probably what makes this different. Mm. And
0: so just so people understand, like, um, you know, and this is like the double act that Lisa <laughs> and I do in our jobs. So at the Sydney Policy Lab and through the University of Sydney, we've built a national network of researchers that partner with the organisers to, to bring that sort of research expertise to some of these technically difficult questions and sort of, draw strengths together uh, to come up with the best policy we can.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a real um, strength to the work. And, and I think that we're all learning about how to, how to do those processes together, aren't we Amanda? Oh, we are. There's just, so,
0: I mean, you know, like you can't be Pollyanna about that relationship yeah. either, you know, like researchers, research and universities move at a slower pace than even community organizers who move at a slower pace than your usual social change person. And so there's there is a different negotiation, a different set of priorities that, yeah, I would say we're still <laughs> early, early mm. stage learning. But but I think it's one of those things that we need to get right if we're going to be able to harness, you know, all the brain power that we have to be able to, and all the experiential power that we have to be able to craft the best policies going forward.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and, and you know, we have, we have a lot of fun doing that. Oh, we
0: do have <laughs> a lot of fun.
1: So I'm wondering, you know,
0: like... You're in this space. It's, I mean, you've moved cities. You're, mo- you're living in, in Gladstone. You've, you're doing. You've thrown yourself into it. Like, what is your hope that the real deal can have on Australia's climate debate, on global climate climate practice, on how we move our way through these questions of transition? Like, what do you think it's possible to deliver using these these tools, having this contribution? That's a big question.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think just in, in a couple of minutes, if you could. <laughs> so so my hope really is that is that as we, we transition away from fossil fuels, that it's an opportunity to make people's lives better. It, it's an opportunity to do community better, to strengthen our community's capacity to respond, and that we, as we are, you know, going to see the, the impacts of climate changes in, in disasters, that we are able to build a, a, a community that, that's more connected to each other, that that's able to speak and is able to act and I guess at the same time enable an economy that really works for people, and um, we have to do that in with with we you know what what we know is to come. So I hope that the the piece that we're doing um, at the real deal in 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 communities across Australia, is a is a contribution to that, and that we don't just see see winds or, or, or changes both in those communities that but we're able to work with others to see the big changes that we need in australia and you know doing that in partnership you know and, and justice with first nations people
0: yeah yeah so i mean it's the thing of seeing climate not just as a climate challenge but a democracy challenge and the hope but being that this can be a moment for rebuilding our democracy as well as dealing with the changes to our climate
1: yeah exactly excellent so this
0: is here's my last question right so You've done this, you've had this extraordinary period of work ranging all, all across um, different forms of community organising in particular and you've worked on the, on the Real Deal project around climate transition for several years. How do you think it's changed you? Reflecting on all of the stories that you shared from, you know, you being young and in, in, the, in the red dust of regional South Australia, how do you think that this work on the Real Deal has changed you?
1: Yeah, it's a really big question. I think we have to believe in people. And, you know, moving to Gladstone nine months ago was pretty scary. But being able to get to know people and to be welcomed by people, I think, gives me hope. And I think that we have to we have to hold on to that hope, not just as a feeling, but as an action, yeah? Like we, we, we build more hope through action. And I think that that's it, – it's the – the, the daily showing up um, with community to, to reimagine how things could, could be different that stays with me and and isn't a isn't a grand reveal really from when I was 14 it's the same practice that I that I do you know e- even from then and I, I hope to keep that optimism um, you know for the next <laughs> 15 years 30 years or you know lifelong lifelong um, community organizer I hope
0: yeah yeah well we're going to need we're gonna <laughs> need the hopers are doing to, to make this world better and at least the work that you're doing is a spectacular model for that. Thank you so much for coming on Changemakers and sharing about the Real Deal Project. And we'll provide some more information about this in the show notes for people who are interested. Thank you so much. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. And this is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. On that website, you can also find out more about The Real Deal Project. that's sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter still at Changemakers99 and I'm on Twitter still at Amanda Tatz. And you can also check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school content if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.